Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin our reading this morning in verse 27 and read through the remaining uh, verses of this first chapter. Paul says in verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to, to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather with your people. Thank you for the word of God and the revelation of our Lord Jesus therein. I pray this morning as we have gathered that our hearts and our minds would be focused and turned to Christ, that we would look only to he who is worthy to be worshipped, he who is worthy to, for, of our submission, who is worthy of our praise and our attention in our lives. And so, Father, as we've joined together, as Paul declared in this epistle, that you are excellent, that knowing you is excellent, we pray that we might have that same desire and passion within our very hearts to know Christ. And may that be continually a growing passion. And may we understand as you are re- have revealed yourself in your word, revealed yourself through the person of our Savior. Father, we pray that we might be attentive and acknowledge and aware of how and you have revealed yourself consistently through the word of God. And that we would grow and glean and benefit and, and pursue after that which is holy and righteous, Lord. And that we would un- have an understanding as provided by your spirit of your truth. And that that truth would continue to conform us to the image of Christ by the working of your Spirit. And that we would be vessels that are pliable within the hands of our heavenly potter. And we pray all this unto your glory and to your honor. Give us ears to hear, hearts to desire and receive, and eyes to see, and a mind to understand the truth that is before us this day. Unto your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. As I have previously reminded you throughout our study of this first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Paul states his thesis statement in chapter 1 and verse 10, when he says in chapter, or Philippians 1, 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. As Paul explained in chapter 3 of this epistle, the knowledge of Christ is excellent. And I cannot overemphasize that. To know Christ is far superior to anything else, to any other knowledge. By the way, it's interesting. If you look at, at flip to, with me to, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. I was not intending on doing this, but I want to point something out to you that we've studied through our our. Uh, time in 1 Corinthians, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this of course is the chapter that is, is known so much so for uh, charity, for love, and there's a context here which we have dealt with in depth through 1 Corinthians. If you don't know this, you should go and listen to that, study through it. But in 1 Corinthians 13, notice what Paul says. Actually, um, he's speaking in verse 30. He says, uh, have all the gifts of healing? Do all, do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet Show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, this is interesting because Paul here says, notice the word excellent again, but Paul here is stating that you covet the best gifts. Yes, there's wonderful gifts that God has given us by the working of his spirit. But he said, but yet I show unto you a more excellent, not gift, 
a more excellent way. And then he says in verse 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Here we find that Christ, because he's Christ we know is this love of God, because the love, charity, the word charity here is agape, and it's the love of God being demonstrated to man. It is not our love for one another. It's God's love to us and God's love in us through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul here says... He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And Paul's statement here is to say, the, and notice, this is hyperbole here, and he's given a hypothetical, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Uh, and again, the whole context here is that he is using this to emphasize or overemphasize the truth. And he's saying, even if I were to speak with tongues of angels, he says, if I do not possess charity, and he doesn't say if I don't show charity. Notice this, he says if I have not. That is possessive. He's saying if I do not possess charity. What does he mean by possess charity? Jesus Christ, God's love. If I do not possess God's love, then I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am become nothing. Again, and have not charity. If I do not possess God's love in Jesus Christ, if I do not possess Christ himself, if I have not charity, then I am nothing. Then verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity. There it is again. Possessive. If I do not possess God's love as it is demonstrated, manifested, and given in Jesus Christ, It profited me nothing. In these three verses, Paul is saying this. Though men may be able to speak, even in the tongues of angels, which is not obviously a possibility in itself, other than the fact that angels always spoke in the tongues of the people to whom they spake. Think of that for a moment. But yet, he says, though I were to speak with some angelic language, he said, if I don't possess the love of Christ, I am nothing. And he said, I show unto you a more excellent way. Did he not say that in chapter 12 in the last verse? Cherish the, or, or, or seek after the, the best gifts, but I show unto you a more excellent way. What he is saying is this. In all the ways and manner which, God, or which men can communicate, Christ is a superior communication to man, God's communication to man. He says, though men may have all these gifts, God's gift in Christ is the more excellent gift. It's the greatest gift. And then he goes on to say, and though I would give myself to the poor, or all that I have to the poor, and even give my body to be burned, Christ is a more excellent sacrifice. This is the more excellent way that Paul is explaining here as he references in verse, or chapter 12 in the last verse. And so Paul is saying back to Philippians, I, I just came to mind when I was reading this just now, but Paul was saying in Corinthians, or, or in, in Philippians, that Christ is, to know Christ is the most excellent thing, the most excellent knowledge. And that's what Paul is again referencing in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. This is the more excellent way. Christ is this more excellent way. He is most excellent. And so we see this excellency of Christ and the knowledge of Christ as being demonstrated here in Philippians chapter 1 and in the entire book of Philippians, the entire epistle itself. And in chapter 3 of this epistle, of course, Paul explains the knowledge of Christ is excellent or superior to everything else. This knowledge of Christ consists of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Say, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency, that superiority and value of the knowledge, the superiority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done that I may win Christ. And I don't want to belabor this. I know we've dealt with this through many weeks. I continue to remind you of this truth because I want you to see everything Paul is stating in this epistle and everything he is stating in this first chapter 
is the thesis for this, again, is stated in these verses, and the explanation or demonstration of this thesis is explained in chapter 3, which we just read, where Paul says to know Christ is more excellent than anything else. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, a couple of verses later, remember, that is where Paul states that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. So Paul is here pointing us to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. And in chapter 12 and then chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, as we looked at a moment ago, Paul is stating the excellency Christ of Christ, the excellent way. This is the more excellent way. Christ is superior. To know Christ is superior. To follow after Christ is superior. In fact, so much so, and eventually, Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 3, eventually. And when we do get there, we will continue to dig into this truth that you've heard so many times already and see how that Paul says everything else is but his refuse. Everything else is but lost. Everything else is inferior, far superior, in fact, inferior. In fact, so inferior that it's not even worthy of mentioning because to know Christ is this much so superior. And so Paul is explaining these truths in this epistle. Over the past many weeks, we've examined two of three specific truths in chapter one of which Paul writes concerning the gospel. We've seen first in verses four and five, Paul expressed thankfulness for this church at Philippi and their fellowship in the gospel. Verses four and five, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So notice Paul mentions the fellowship of the gospel and his thankfulness for their fellowship in the gospel or of the gospel. Our study of, uh, within this passage, we've seen that the fellowship of the gospel or in the gospel then produces as well the furtherance of the gospel, which is second in verse 12. Paul explained the importance of the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 12 says, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things that hap- which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And our study of this particular truth concerning the furtherance of the gospel has spanned over a period of five weeks now. And within our study of this portion of the text, we discovered that Paul was resolved to live sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel and to die sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's resolve to live and die sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel was rooted in Paul's identity in Christ. As Paul stated in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. At the sake of sounding repetitive, it is necessary that I once again remind you that we must not misquote this verse. Paul does not say that for him to live was Christ. That's not what he says. And many times this verse has been greatly misquoted by just leaving one preposition out. To, and went T-O. And whenever Paul says here, for to me to live as Christ, that's not the same as saying for me to live as Christ. He's saying this is a personal matter for to me. To, it would be like this. It'd be like you, if you were to uh, present a, a dinner to guests coming into your home, and let's say that you have steak and potatoes and carrots and all the extras, and, and they come in and they're going, to me, this isn't good. <laughs> and you're going, wait a minute. No, this is great. And most of us would agree, this is great. No, but to, are you following to me? That's what Paul's saying here. For to me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a very personal matter here. And Paul is saying, it may not be true of you, but to me, to live is Jesus. To me, to die is gain. See, because not everyone can say that. 
Not everyone can claim that. That's not a reality in everyone's life. And so this is very important that Paul, his identity in Christ is why he was able to say whether life or death, Christ is magnified in my life. In these verses, he says that because for to Paul, to live was Christ and to die was gain. It was beneficial, it was profitable. And so it's interesting and and, and important that we recognize these Truths. And then, of course, is Paul's statement, the question we must ask, is Paul's statement true of us? Could we say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain? The only way that's true is because we understand our identity in Christ. And therefore, if that is true, the result of that or the fruit of that will be evident in a life, therefore, that is living sacrificially for the furtherance of the gospel in the fellowship of the gospel. And a life, and a, even a death that will be sacrificial to the furtherance of the gospel in the fellowship of the gospel. So you see the connection, connecting points here throughout this letter already in the first epistle, or first chapter of this epistle. Paul demonstrated in his life that the gospel was superior to his life, superior to his desires, and superior to his personal well-being. As we progress in our study of this first chapter of Paul's epistle to the believers in Philippi, we discover that Paul, after having addressed the fellowship of the gospel, which we reviewed a moment ago, the furtherance of the gospel which we just looked into, then he addressed the faith of the gospel. And that, within the passage, this division of this first chapter we are looking at this morning, this last division. This morning we began this examination of Paul's statement, the faith of the gospel. And we will do so by considering Paul's exhortation concerning the faith of the gospel. Within this exhortation, Paul provides both a positive aspect and as well a negative aspect. Paul begins his exhortation with the positive aspect in verse 27 and then provides the negative aspect in verse 28. So let's look at what Paul says here. The positive aspect of Paul's exhortation, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Within this last division of this first chapter of this epistle, Paul changes the direction or changes the tone, if you will, of this epistle from that of commendation and explanation to that of exhortation to the Philippian believers. Verse 27, we begin. Let's look at the first part of this verse again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The noun conversation means live or lead one's life. And Paul's statement, as it becometh, means worthy. So Paul is exhorting or charging these believers to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they had received. This exhortation is one which Paul expressed to other churches as well. If you recall, during our lengthy study through the epistle, uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Paul, we saw that Paul began the practical portion of the epistle in chapter 4, and in doing so, he gave an exhortation for the Ephesian believers to live out the truth of their position in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 1-3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
it is worthy to note that Paul charged the Ephesians, if you look back to chapter 4, 1 through 3, to walk, which means to live in a manner worthy of the calling of God into this gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul further exhorted the church at Ephesus to maintain the unity provided by God's Spirit. And so within both epistles, Ephesians and Philippians, Paul is exhorting or charging the churches to live their lives according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the command is for these believers to live their lives by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a manner which was appropriate in relation to the grace they had received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, again in in verse 27, only let your conversation, only, he's saying your, your life should be totally committed to being lived in a manner, lead your life, live your life in such a way that it is demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ Not that you are worthy of such a gift, for then it's no longer grace. So we know Paul's not saying, oh, well, try to live to where you can pay God back for what he's done for you. That is not the connotation here at all. But rather, Paul is saying, if you receive this grace, then allow this grace to be manifested in your life in such a manner that it is a life demonstrated and manifesting the truth of your appreciation, your submission to God for this grace, and that others would be see the testimony of a life that is living according to the gospel you are proclaiming, according to the gospel and the grace that you have received. Again, I say to you, if if this grace of God in salvation is not powerful enough to change our daily living, then why would one ever trust it to be powerful enough to change one's eternity? If, if this grace cannot change me now, if this grace cannot transform me right now, then why would I think it's able to change spiritually my entire eternity when it cannot physically and temporally change me right now? So this is a grace which we are to walk worthy of. We are to walk according to the grace, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says again, maintain the unity God as provided by Spirit in Ephesians. And in verse 21, Paul again says, as he personally demonstrated this truth in his life, declared this truth when he stated, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Such a declaration as manifested by the life of Paul was Paul living a life according to the grace of the gospel of Christ Jesus. He was living worthy of the gospel. Notice, according to this grace, I have received this grace, now for to me to live is Christ. Christ is my entire life. I'm walking according to the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? We immediately think, of course, how that it is that of deliverance because we are delivered from sin. We are delivered from condemnation. We are delivered from uh, the wrath of God to come. And so we think about deliverance, but let's not forget another portion or part or aspect of this salvation or the gospel is that of redemption, being redeemed unto God. So if I am going to live according, my conversation is going to be according to the gospel, worthy of the gospel, then that means that I'm going to live as one who has been delivered from sin, as one who has been delivered from the wrath of God, from condemnation, but I'm also going to live as one that recognizes and acknowledges that I'm redeemed unto God. I have been bought 
By God, I am not my own. Now, is this perfection? Does this look like perfection? Absolutely not. I am not perfect. I've said that to you many times. You can ask my wife and she will ver- and validate and verify that over and over again. Because I am not perfect. I am not. I am not sinless. I am not. But I am a life that has been transformed by the grace of God, that is continually being changed by the grace of God. And this is what Paul is talking about. Verse 27, he goes on to say, That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul had exhorted the Philippian believers in this verse and then expressed his desired expectation from the exhortation he had given. This is interesting. Paul makes an exhortation, he gives a charge, and then he explains the expectation from the exhortation that he had given. Paul desired that the testimony of these believers would be that of a genuine commitment to the gospel to which God had called them. Listen, it... There's something here that we need to be mindful of. All of us, myself and you. It is wonderful to be under the truth of God's Word being taught. And it is wonderful to see the riches and depths of who Christ is according to the Scriptures. But let us be mindful. Once we see and understand, we are then held responsible and accountable before God to live according to the truth that we have received. And so we are responsible, we are accountable. And Paul is saying, with this exhortation is an expectation. And that is that you live according to the grace that you've been given. He goes on to say that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. So whether Paul personally witnessed the testimony of the commitment of these Philippian believers, or whether he heard of their testimony by other means, by the testimony of others or witness of others, the exhortation and the expectation resulting from Paul's exhortation was that these believers live committed lives according to the grace of God by which they had been called. Paul exhorted the believers to notice, he said, that ye stand fast in one spirit. So he's saying, this is my desire, I'm exhorting you, and my expectation of you because of where you are in Christ, and living in Christ, and identifying in Christ, is that you stand fast in one spirit. Now the phrase stand fast, it means to stand firm. Be firmly planted, in other words. And as Paul emphasized in his letter again to the church at Ephesus, Within this passage, we've already considered Ephesians 4.1 a moment ago. Paul also points out in this verse that one is to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as declared in this verse, stand fast in one Spirit. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul says that we are to uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Remember, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in chapter 4, verse 3, I believe, of Ephesians. And now he says in, in this verse here in Philippians... Stand fast in one spirit. So he's alluding again to the same truth he's already taught in, in Ephesians. Then he says, with one mind, in Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 1, with one mind, verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Once again, Paul uses the adjective one. He says that you stand fast in one spirit. Then he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul uses this adjective one again twice here in this verse, and the emphasis again points us to Paul's statement concerning the unity we experience as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, this is exactly what Paul was teaching. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice this, seven times Paul will use the adjective one. There is one body, 
and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So you see the unity which Paul speaks of in Ephesians when he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's why. There is one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body. He's explaining these truths. And he says the same thing here in Philippians, that you stand fast in one Spirit. Now, he's not, he's not, this is not necessarily saying stand fast in God's Spirit. He's saying let your Spirit be that of God's Spirit, that you stand fast in the truth and the unity of the Spirit of God, or that which has been provided by God's Spirit. And then he says, with one mind. Well, how can we have one mind? As we know the teaching of Paul so clearly explains, we have been given the mind of Christ as believers, and we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as believers. The verb striving in Philippians 1.27, when he says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, it means to struggle along with. And Jude made a very similar reference in his epistle concerning the faith. And he's talking about the faith of the gospel here. One mind, one spirit, one mind, striving together, one mind for the faith of the gospel. And in Jude verse 3, Jude said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now again, notice with me the definite article, the, T-H-E. He says the faith or the faith. And that is a definite article specific to a, or referring to a specific thing. And he says here, earnestly contend for the faith. And here when you come to Philippians, Paul is saying with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says in Jude, Jude says, contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Paul continued that they were to struggle for or with the faith of the gospel. The noun faith means believe. So for believing or the belief of the gospel. And Paul's use of the word faith in this verse infers something that evokes belief or trust. In other words, the gospel of Christ is trustworthy and is something in which we can fully believe and trust in that the gospel of Christ will not make us shamed. And Paul alluded to this in the previous verses of Philippians chapter 1 in verses 19 and 20, if you look back a few verses. He said, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation, this imprisonment, and all the, those who would preach Christ out of contention and strife and envy and so on. He says, I know all this shall turn to my salvation, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul was explaining that he had absolute confidence and belief in the faith or in the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident that such a belief would not leave him in shame or ashamed, but that it would result in Christ being magnified, being exalted in his body, whether it be by in his life or by his death. So Paul is saying, the gospel does not leave me ashamed. I am absolutely committed. I have belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jude says, contend for the faith, he's not saying that you are to fight 
as in a, a battle necessarily in this regard for the faith, but contend again, it, it, it implies that of, of struggle. And he's not saying that we struggle in the sense that we are fighting against others because of the faith, though that is true as well. But it's that we struggle ourselves concerning the faith, in the faith, with the faith, not, not in opposition to it, but in understanding and being committed and in belief of that which God has said. And therefore, we then stand firmly, stand fast, stand firmly in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we must wrestle with the truth of God's word. You must. Remember, there's a war that's going on within you. Remember that? There's a battle that's constantly present. And there is a struggle that we have. We labor in the Word. What do you do when you labor? You struggle. We labor in the Word. We struggle in the Word. This does not mean that that we should have a hard time swallowing the truth that God has said. It means that we are to take seriously and be dedicated and diligent within the truth of the faith of the gospel. And so we are therefore as well to stand as soldiers, as Paul tells Timothy. We are to fight in that regard as well. So the positive aspect of Paul's exhortation here in verse 27 is only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, whether I'm present, whether I'm not, stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your conversation, live your life worthy of the gospel, the grace that you have received of Christ of God the Father, only let your conversation live, only live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. But then in verse 28, he provides us as well the negative aspect of this exhortation. Verse 20, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. So in verse 27, Paul's exhorting the church to actively commit themselves to the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, in verse 28, Paul now exhorts the church to not allow the opposition to the gospel to have any effect or impact on them and their commitment to the faith of the gospel. So Paul, within this portion of this exhortation, is commanding the church on what not to do just as strongly as he commanded them in verse 27 on what they were to do. So he's saying... Only live your life, verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel. But then he says, do not allow opposition to the gospel to worthy you, or to worry you, or to impact you. He says, and in nothing, verse 28, terrified by your adversaries. The verb terrified is in the passive voice, and it means to let oneself be intimidated. So Paul is saying, do not be intimidated. Do not allow those who oppose the gospel and those who oppose those who are committed to the gospel, do not allow them to intimidate you. So Paul is charging the believers to not allow the opposition of those who are enemies to the gospel to be an intimidation to them. They were to stand firm. They were to maintain their belief or faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 28. Which is to them, this this adversarial position to them, an evident token of perdition, but to, you, of you, but to you of salvation and that of God. So the previous clause within this verse ends with a colon. Notice that, if you will, with me. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. So he's saying and then there's a colon for punctuation. And what Paul is saying here 
is that you should not allow the adversaries to the gospel and to the minist- your ministry of the gospel to impact you, to affect you, to intimidate you. Colon. And that's important because grammatically a colon is used to separate two independent clauses in which the second clause explains or clarifies the first clause. And we find this to be the case of the use of the colon within verse 28. Paul charges the church to not allow the opposition to intimidate them in any manner, and the reason for this is explained in the next portion of the verse. So he says, again, let's look at the beginning of the verse, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Do not allow the, your adversaries or those opposed to the gospel to intimidate you. And here's why. Here's why. He is saying that those who oppose the gospel, this serves as a sign or the evidence of their condemnation while it serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness to deliver those who are committed to belief of the gospel and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, do not be intimidated, because we are reminded that the very reason they do this is because they are under condemnation, but that same reality of their condemnation proves to be through time and eternity God's means of deliverance for you. So do not be intimidated by those who oppose Verses 29 and 30. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul further explained that this deliverance of which he referred in the previous verse, verse 28, was not equivalent to the absence of suffering, but was God's faithfulness in suffering. Notice what he says. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So you can expect there to be suffering. You can expect there to be opposition. And you need to recognize that the opposition does not mean that God is not faithful. It's through the opposition that God is faithful. It is through the suffering that God is manifesting his faithfulness to you or to himself in delivering you. Paul informed the believers at Philippi that it was God's purpose and design that they suffer for the cause of Christ. In other other words, if they were called by God to believe, then they were also called by God to suffer. There's obviously much more to say and speak concerning this matter of the suffering that is affiliated and associated with Christ. And Scripture speaks much to this. There are many uh, predominant verses in Scripture that this addresses this very issue. And, And so, Lord willing, we're going to attempt to come back to this and deal with this somewhat more so especially when we look at, at, at the next verse in chapter 2. If there be any, therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort, if love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, verse 2, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he goes on and explains these things about the church and how we are to view one another. But notice he begins with there's any consolation. Consolation, comfort from what? From and in the suffering that he's mentioning now. That God has... It's been given unto us on the behalf of Christ. It is, it is ordained by God. It is purposed by God that we are to not only identify in the life of Christ, but we identify also in the death of Christ, and therefore we are identifying in his life through identifying in his death. But between life and death in that period of time, guess what else there was? There was rejection, there was opposition, and there was great suffering. Between the time that Christ was born and the time that Christ died, There was a life of suffering. Was there not? 
Did Jesus not suffer? Was he not isolated unto himself as far as mankind was concerned by large? Even his most beloved disciples, did they not fall asleep in the garden when he tells them to pray with him while he is agonizing in and over the faith, if you will? And yet they fall asleep. There was suffering in the life of Christ, not to mention the physical suffering and agony and pain that he suffered. And here's what, here's what Paul is saying. You know what? If God has called you to believe, then he's also called you to suffering. So embrace the suffering. It doesn't mean we want to suffer. That's not what's being said. But understand, as Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. And fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That I might be conformed to his death. So Paul is saying, I want to identify in the life of Christ. I want to identify in the death of Christ. But between that life and that death, guess what there is? Fellowship of sufferings. And God has called us to this. If you've been called to belief, then you've been called to suffer. Because as Christ suffered, so we also are to suffer. He's left us an example, Peter says, that we should follow in his steps. Listen, the faith of the gospel, and this is so interesting here because Paul's tying this together. Belief in the gospel, the faith of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, the fellowship in the gospel, all of these are tied together with suffering. The fellowship in the gospel means you will suffer, doesn't it? If, the gospel, if you're furthering the gospel, guess what you will do? You will suffer. And if you believe the gospel, then we're being taught that we'll suffer. So in the fellowship, in the furtherance, and in the faith of the gospel, which Paul is dealing with in this first chapter of this epistle, suffering is interwoven throughout. And we must acknowledge and recognize that. Listen, there's a false gospel, there's a perverted gospel, there's another gospel that's been proclaimed for, well, since the gospel. But yet in in recent time in history, in, in, in the last decades even of, of our lifetime, there is this perversion of the gospel in that, oh, you don't want to go to hell? Then ask Jesus in your heart, right? You, don't, you, you want a good life? You want God to give you good things? Then just ask Jesus to save you, right? You know why so many people in the last decades have professed Christ and why as many people also have rejected and turned or walked away or walked away in apostasy, if you will, from their profession of faith. It's because they have been promised from a false gospel that God's going to make everything all right with you when you just trust Him and God's got a better thing for you planned in your life and your life is going to be bountiful and fruitful and prosperous and your sickness is going to go away, and your hurts are going to go away, and your poverty is going to go away, and who wouldn't want this? So all these people profess this faith in Christ, which is not the faith of the gospel. But it is a false belief and a false gospel that is full of lies. When Scripture tells us, if you come to belief in Christ then just as you are called to the faith of the gospel, you are also called to the suffering of the gospel. If you follow Christ, you will suffer. Because He suffered. And just as I said, 
Who doesn't want the false gospel as it's declared? Who does want the true gospel? Only those brought to faith in the gospel desire this gospel. But we recognize as Paul, do we not? And I'm sure we'll deal with this again. That all the sufferings for this time, this affliction for the moment is just a light thing. It's all temporal. It's just something that's going to come and going to go. But God is working a far greater weight of eternal glory, which will be revealed. Suffering is as much a part of the life of those called to the faith of the gospel as is sanctification. We are called to a committed life, which will result in suffering, but in the end will ultimately glorify Christ. So you're... The good news I have for you today, to encourage you along your way and journey of life, expect suffering. Embrace suffering. For it's our identity in the death and life of Christ, as well as in the sufferings of Christ, that we know Him. And that's why Paul could say that I may know Him. That I may know Him in resurrection power, that I may know Him in death, that I may know Him in suffering. I've said to you before, I'll say this to you again, I'm sure many more times, if God gives me breath and opportunity, I don't like to suffer. I don't like to suffer in any capacity. And I'm sure you don't like to suffer either in any capacity. But yet it is through the suffering for the cause of Christ that we recognize we are identified with and in Christ. And this is a glorious thing. And if we have an eternal perspective, as did Paul in Corinthians when he stated that our light affliction is but for a moment, but this works a far more exceeding great eternal weight of glory. If we understand that, then we as Paul as well can embrace the suffering, recognizing that God is working His purpose, His plan, and His glory through all of this. You know, we give a lot of talk, don't we, about being submitted. I talk a lot about submission. You know that because it's just everywhere in the Scripture. We talk about wanting to have submitted lives. But it seems like we only say such things when things go the way we want them to go. And in reality, that is anti-gospel. And this is not discouraging. I know I said that tongue-in-cheek a moment ago, but this look, these truths are encouraging. For if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. And it's not saying, oh, okay, some of you will suffer, some of you won't. No, as we suffer with Christ, therefore we know and are confident we are going to be glorified as He is glorified because we are identified in Him with him and there's no greater place to be you know what's greater than being in comfort being in christ you know what's greater than being in wealth being in christ you know what's greater than being in happiness being in christ but here's the the irony of it in reality the only genuine wealth is in christ the only genuine comfort is in christ the only genuine happiness is in him and everything else is a, as a mirage or as a, it, it, it is a shadow. It is a, a false of the true. It's only a semblance of the true. So let us identify in Christ and expect, therefore, that there is suffering. But stand firm, stand fast in the unity of the Spirit through the sufferings as you are identifying in Jesus Christ.